Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Nora Loretto. Hey. You didn't shout back my name enthusiastically. I'll forgive it. Writer, author, researcher, <laughs> and half of the Sandy and Nora podcast. Uh, welcome back to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. Thank you, Jesse Brown. <laughs> Today on the show, teddy bears, cowboy hats, and TikTok memes. We will rate and review the pregame social media warm-up of the federal leaders. Also, can we in the media keep everyone addicted to COVID doom scrolling? Seriously, can we? Pretty please? Uh, finally, Nora, we will talk about Wendy Mesley's new independent podcast. Just, just, just kidding. <laughs> what? No. God. Or am I? This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by John Broge, Morgan Peters, Kat Bailey, Jonathan Sherrard, Fraser Young, Emma Bell Scolan. Vincennes Cote and Laura. My name is Laura and I'm a violinist and improvisation teacher in Ottawa, Ontario. I support Canada Land because Archie Mann and the Commons team show me a side of Canada that I never knew existed. Their work proves that fact is way stranger than fiction.
Sonoria, here's something that nobody wants. An election. You into it? Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's go. Nobody wants this election. Uh, it will be hard <laughs> to get anyone to pay attention to it. And those are exactly the right kind of conditions that favor Justin Trudeau, or so Justin Trudeau is gambling. What all of this means is that the other party leaders have to get their shit together. Aaron O'Toole and Jagmeet Singh have to shine up their shoes and start tap dancing. And they're kind of trying different stuff out over the summer, you know, experiment with their personal brands and reboot the image. And what I want to do today with you, Nora, is go through a few of these clips and pics and pass judgment on them. What do you say? I love it. I'm here to judge. All right. Let's begin with our brave leader. You know, it seemed to me that the Trudeau administration was kind of just like accumulating scandals and problems as one might accumulate scraggly graying hairs on one's face. And it was just looking chaotic and unkempt, just unwholesome. And then something happened. I don't know what. And everything seemed fresh and new, like it was 2015 all over again. Do you know what I mean? Well, I know that you read every single tweet that I put out into the world. And so I know that you saw back in February that I tweeted that the most annoying stunt will be when Trudeau shaves off his playoff beard or his COVID beard and announces it's 2021 and COVID is done. And he did that. I believe that's what you're talking about. He shaved it all off. He probably got a face peel. And I'm not sure if you noticed, but it happened the day before his second vaccination. (laughs) Like, what better way to announce to Canadians that this is done and we are ready for a two-dose summer? And this was on July 2nd. Like, I just wish it wasn't so tacky. Like, so (laughs) we're going to talk about specific things they've put out on their feeds. And what we got from Justin Trudeau was... Ooh, look, it's his face again. <laughs> and and here he is solemnly laying a little teddy bear on unmarked graves that they've discovered. He's kneeling and placing a teddy bear and he's got an orange shirt pin on his suit. Mm-hmm. And he tweets, after hearing from residential school survivors and seeing the unmarked graves in Kawases First Nation, it's hard to find the words that are enough. But to all those affected, know that I am here as your partner to walk the path of reconciliation and right these historical wrongs. Well, that was uh, just around the same time that the federal government announced a new agreement with Kawasas First Nation to give control over the child welfare uh, service to the to the First Nation. And I think that the fact that we've had now announcement after announcement after announcement of unmarked graves or of mass graves now totaling well into the thousands, almost 2,000, Trudeau like has to walk a very bizarre line of what effectively is genocide denial because the government isn't actually doing what they need to do to atone for what happened, to make right what happened, to start undoing some of the harmful policies that are perpetuating colonial violence. At the same time, you know, telegraph to Canadians that he is doing everything possible. And this is this is so cynical. And it's okay to approach this topic today with levity and and kind of making fun of these folks. But this picture in particular and that tweet in particular really does show just how cynical and gross the federal government and Justin Trudeau specifically is on this issue. Because, of course, they're still fighting residential school survivors in court. They're still not funding services on reserve at the same level that they'd be funded off reserve, right? There's still communities without drinking water. We know the list. 
And we also know that these are not going to be issues that decide the election because genocide and colonialism in this country runs so deep. And so this is like performative to the max. And it really makes my stomach churn just knowing that the power is in Trudeau's hands to make some significant changes here. And he's not going to do it. He's not going to be forced into doing it. And he won't get any political capital if he doesn't. It's really just like a denial of the last six years. I mean, I think that he could sort of credibly present himself in 2015 as like, look, my father's sins are not my own. My party's sins are not my own. I'm running on a platform of reconciliation. That was before his broken promises. That was before Jody Wilson-Raybould. So I think you're right. It's a kind of denialism. It's hoping against hope that if he combines enough symbols, you know, the teddy bear is a symbol, the orange shirt is a symbol, Mm -hmm. his own damn face, which he thinks we're so enamored with. And damn it, he's right. He can shave and that's news, you know? (laughs) Right. And frankly, you know, the new governor general is a symbolic appointment. Like the sheer force of the media management of this will overcome the reality and the failures on this file. And he can still assert himself Mm -hmm. as the prime minister of reconciliation. I see it as tacky and ham-fisted, but I also have to concede, like, I wonder if this might work. I mean, you know, Karen Pugliese Mm -hmm. was on the show. Like, I was like, look, this is going to be a headline every time they make another discovery. And we're going to have to deal with this. And she said, I don't think so. I think that the first one is the headline. And then by the fourth or fifth discovery, it's buried in the paper and we kind of forget about it. And yeah. Uh, that's already happened. Yeah, I think the, the the question is who's the audience for this for this spectacle, and the audience are people who vote liberal, right? It's by and large it's white Canadians, but not just white Canadians, but it's certainly Canadians who both feel sad about this news, but who are okay to accept platitudes as being some sort of promise. You're right in talking about how 2015 was this moment where he was new and it was none of the old vestiges of the Liberal Party. But the Liberal Party is the Liberal Party. And Trudeau, I mean, like he has a name that is so associated with the Liberal Party that it's also very clear that the party establishment has come up with a bit of an exit strategy. So if Trudeau did something tomorrow that was so egregious that he needed to be just put away in a drawer – They've got this Mark Carney, Christian Freeland kind of show just waiting on the side to swoop in and to do the new, oh, this is the new Liberal Party. Once again, the same strategy of 2015. And I think that's very interesting that they've got these two strategies moving forward that are kind of foolproof because at the end of the day, it also just is like a relative question. Where is Trudeau relative to Aaron O'Toole and to Jagmeet Singh? And if he can just maintain people having a good mood, which I've seen the polls have said that Canadians' mood is kind of getting better as the vaccines are continuing, then he's going to win. There's really no question that this is going to be a relatively easy election for him. And Karen's right. I mean, the first time the news broke in Kamloops, I received a message from a longtime reporter who was saying to me, I don't understand why this is news. I wrote this piece a decade ago and it was literally like, you know, mass graves found at a residential school site. And it's like, exactly. We live in a goldfish country and liberals are masters at forcing us to forget, showing us something shiny and hoping that it's just shiny enough that we'll choose that rather than the other options. I mean, now the shiny new thing is nostalgia. He's back in the American media. His whatever celebrity status he has, he can still get an op-ed into CNN. And he writes this just embarrassing series of platitudes about his feminist credentials. And we can Mm -hmm. smash one of the defining inequalities of our time. So it's, I think we can get a sense of what he's going to be selling, which is like, it's 2015 all over again. I am your feminist PM. I am your reconciliation PM. Let's move on. Let's have a look at conservative leader. What's his name again? Nobody knows this guy. Aaron O'Toole. 
This is Alberta, a magnificent province that is rich in resources from agriculture to energy to innovation, but even richer in its people. People that have come here to work hard, to have success, to help others. This is a place where you get things done. It's a getter done province. And since 1967, Albertans have contributed $600 billion to the Canadian Federation. That's money for hospitals. That's money for schools. There's been more jobs at times in Ontario because of the energy sector in Alberta than there has been in auto, for example. Jobs, opportunity, because of this Alberta success. All right, that's that's some boilerplate pandering in audio form. Really, the message is visual. And what we see here is, uh, is Aaron O'Toole with like a 10-gallon cowboy hat. In a, in a field. And he says, this is Alberta, which I want to fact check, by the way. I, like, yeah, that field could be anywhere. I know he was in Alberta, so he might as well have gone and filmed it there. But <laughs> the cowboy, it was bugging me, this image of him. Who is he reminding me of? Do you remember the movie Anchorman? I, I never saw it. That does not shock me. Champ <laughs> Kind. Champ. Uh, whammy. That guy. It's the spinning image. I, it almost, like, he has to have been going for that. I kind of expected to see, like, him do that dance where he's kicking his heel spurs out. Like, Aaron O'Toole has um, a mountain uh, to climb to make him look good. <laughs> like, I don't know how to say that in any other kinder way. I mean, someone once said to me that uh, his chin looks like Hank Hill's but like in one of those memes where it was like clenched shut, people might understand that reference if you don't, if you're like me and didn't watch Anchorman. But he he's really trying to obviously appeal to the base of the Conservative Party. And as an Ontarian, as someone that's from the suburbs in Ontario, he doesn't actually have any connections to rural Canada, which is really, really important. There's nothing the Conservatives can do to make themselves look better than the Liberals right now. And I say that knowing that the Liberals have such a lock on how Canada has responded to the pandemic. And while we have mass deaths and while we have tons of mismanagement and all of these problems, at the same time, people are being vaccinated. And that's political capital that you just cannot erode. And at the same time, you have this guy who's deeply unauthentic, awkward. Um, I mean, I find some elements of Aaron O'Toole not totally off-putting. And I think that he is the kind of leader that might be able to move the party away from the really hard Christian right wing kind of stuff, the stink that surrounded Sheer. But we know that that's a really important part of the party for them to win. And so he's got to walk a really weird line between appealing to those folks, but then also appealing to average people that might consider voting liberal. But it's not going to pass by the belt buckle, cowboy shirt, cowboy hat kind of look in a field. Yeehaw, fellow cowpokes. Look, I got nothing against this guy. He seems fine. Like, like he's not as cringy as Sheer. But this guy is like nobody from nowhere. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if, if one person in a thousand would be able to put a name to a photograph of this guy. He's got to put on a cowboy hat, like some Groucho Marx glasses. He needs some shtick because like yeah. just from like basic brand recognition or name recognition, there's a reason why Trudeau is calling this now. And it's because this guy just has failed to define himself in any which way. We can say whatever we want about Trudeau. Most voters in Canada just do not feel like they have a choice. Yeah. I, like the thing about the Conservative Party of Canada is that the leader has to be believable at the international plowing match. Right. Has to be someone who 
on top of a tractor is someone you can believe has actually driven a tractor before. What I do think is that Aaron O'Toole is a placeholder leader. And whoever comes next, if they get someone who spoke to rural Canada, who was actually charismatic with someone who was spunky, and I'm thinking specifically someone who's not a white man, I think that that would actually really, really change the success possibilities of the Conservative Party of Canada. I'm wondering what forces need to kind of coalesce to make that happen, but that would be my prediction in the long term of where this party is going. But they're definitely not winning this next election. Let's talk about Jagmeet. You know, there's all of this hype around Jagmeet as a TikTok superstar. And the star wrote a really interesting piece about, um, you know, besides just saying, look, he's got TikTok videos that people like, the actual uh, analysis of his TikTok account, Jagmeet Singh boasts more than 625,000 followers on TikTok, where users post short clips featuring popular songs, dance trends, and such. And he got that in less than two years. That is the same number-ish that it took him eight years to get on Instagram. Mm. And he doesn't have that level of support on Twitter, even though he's been on Twitter for a decade. And of course, TikTok has this young audience. It's really hard to tell what's going on from the sound, but we'll play a few here, and I'll do my best to explain. Yeah, good luck. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) I think that the formula that Jugmeet has um, employed to great success on TikTok is piggybacking an existing TikTok meme. There's one really popular video where it's like, you're laughing to a Chief Keef song, and then like there's like the captions tell you what it is that you're laughing at. And these are usually used like by TikTok influencers and performers to make jokes, but he actually does make them about policy. He seems natural. He's not cringy. It can get a little bit low on the policy. Like there's this one, the, his most recent one is this meme where the the TikTok dancer is superimposed in front of a group of of people dancing. And the joke you do is like everyone snaps into formation and dances in in synchronicity halfway through the video. And the way that this has become a TikTok meme is different people saying, this is when you used to get made fun of for being Korean, but now people are spending $150,000 on plastic surgery to look just like you. Uh, And then here you are dancing in victory, in vindication, or when you get made fun of for your Zatar sandwiches in middle school, but now people are paying $10 for it at Trader Joe's. So these are like, the meme is, uh, they all laughed at me, but now it's gone my way. And Jugmeet's version of this is, when they say young people don't vote, but here's the vindication, but you know they're going to make history in the next election. And he rolls up his sleeves and he dances along in the TikTok video. Okay, that's Jesse explaining TikTok. It's, it's a compelling narrative that he's going to mobilize all of these Canadian young voters who haven't been voters in the past. But as Murad pointed out on the backbench, Murad wrote that article about Jagmeet in the last election about Jagmeet's Snapchat following. And guess what? Those fucking millennials didn't show up and vote. Okay, so I have to admit that I actually do think these videos are cringe. <laughs> And maybe it's just because Jagmeet's like older than me by maybe three years. And I'm like, oh, dude, what are you doing? (laughs) This is for young people. (laughs) (laughs) I do have to admit that when I watch this, I have to like set my um, eyes on you will be cringing soon. And then I'm like, whoa, there it is. There I am. Um, One of the problems with the meme format on TikTok is the words often cover up other words on the screen. And so even though there is political, some level of political discussion. Sometimes you can't even read it. And so I find that I'm not convinced that this is at all going to do what Singh's campaign team is saying it is doing. 
like, okay, so I have this podcast, it's called Sandy and Nora, and a lot of our audience is exactly the target audience that the NDP is trying to get, right? Young people. And they're young enough that I feel very fucking old when some of them talk to me about politics. And it's very clear that we're coming from very different political perspectives. And the the things that I hear from the engaged left-wing young people who the NDP is trying to attract um, is that they want substantive policy discussion. They want to hear not just the criticism, which is so easy, and I say this as a critic, but they want to hear what the NDP is actually going to do. And the problem with the TikToks is that the NDP does not, and Singh does not, ever say what the NDP would do. It's all criticism. And so it's an okay meme to be like, this is what happens when young people actually come out and vote, even though we know, statistically speaking, that's not going to happen. Also, because young people have been so disenfranchised for so many other reasons that, I mean, expressing politics through voting is not actually a great proxy. But I mean, your political parties, you obviously care about that. But the meme format and the format on TikTok allows Singh to not ever talk about what he actually would do. Yeah. And when the NDP does say what they're going to do, it comes off as liberal light or insufficient or not exactly what people want to hear or see. And so I just see this as a PR campaign to distract from the fact that the NDP is kind of nowheresville on really like hard policy discussions. And I think that young people have a hunger for that. And I don't think that this is going to work. To your point about substantive policy stuff, there are two Jagmeet Singhs on social media, depending on which platform. And I have to say there there was a, a pretty damn solid traditional political ad that the NDP put out. Who's been fighting for you this pandemic? Not this guy. Trudeau wants you to think it was him, but really it was Jagmeet Singh. Jagmeet used the minority government to force Trudeau to get more people, more help, faster. Trudeau wanted to skimp on CERB. Jagmeet made him double it. Trudeau wanted to end benefits. Jagmeet made him extend them. And Trudeau offered almost nothing for small business. Jagmeet delivered a 75% wage subsidy. Justin Trudeau talks. Jagmeet Singh delivers. Okay, so what you get there, I think, was effective because, like, I haven't been keeping track of what the influence of the NDP and the minority government on Trudeau's minority government has been during the pandemic and where they have nudged the liberals to provide more CERB or, or more weeks of benefits. And, you know, these are political uh, claims, so all of them bear fact-checking. But I think that this is exactly what they need to be doing because we know that to the 5 million people who liked him on TikTok, but not to you, Nora, Jagmeet is liked on TikTok. He's, he's funny. He's a good critic of Trudeau. But I think the big question is like, yeah, but okay, when you're not criticizing, when you're actually doing something, like what can you do? Mm-hmm. So it's a very effective thing for him to say, I'm not speaking in big platitudes. $2,000 is better than $1,000. And that's what my influence has been. And frankly, because everyone knows he's not actually running to be prime minister. He's running to be the official opposition. What this presents is like there are tangible benefits in your pocket for having me in a powerful position in the outcome of this election. Mm-hmm. To our overview of like what this tells us about what's coming up, I think that this could be this could be an effective route for the NDP. Like whatever young votes they could pick up, plus, you know, it's also olds like me in the Toronto Star talking about his TikTok fame as much as it is his TikTok fame, but then actually swaying people who maybe are like I hope people are cringing at Trudeau. Like just, I'm not even talking from a politics point of view. It's just that like Trudeau treats everybody like we're dumb. I mean, I guess all these guys do. So I kind of hope that people are like in the market for other options at least. And if they Mm -hmm. are in the market for other options, I kind of think that this is not a terrible social media strategy for Jagmeet Singh and the NDP. Yeah, it's it's actually the only 
option, I think, because the video, the things that they say in the video, I mean, I would argue some details about that, but I'm a critic. From the average person's perspective, it is true that the NDP has been fighting to get more of some of these things. And so this is the best option for them to try and convince people that a minority government is good and that it can be functional. The problem with the NDP is they dance so much on the edges that these small reforms, they're not enough. And there's such an appetite out there for like a bold, confident political option that is different from what we've ever had, especially after the pandemic. And I've just been so constantly disappointed that the NDP hasn't done that. They haven't offered that. And so if we're having the conversation about the PR strategy, like the TikTok stuff is great for the reasons that you mentioned. It's great because it has a lot of followers. People know who he is. Like to create the celebrity, that's all great from a PR perspective. And it's all great from a PR perspective to hang their hat on expanding these social programs and being that watchdog that they tried to position themselves as during the pandemic. I don't think that the PR piece, though, is enough to kind of get past the missing pieces in the bold vision, which, you know, we'll see. We'll see what they come up with for their platform. And I also think that it's going to be very interesting to see how young people engage with politics right now, because millennials and Gen Z, you know, have been just battered by this pandemic. And it's really anyone's guess and anyone's taking how they're going to orient themselves towards that demographic. It looks like Aaron O'Toole's like, fuck it. Like, I'm not even going to get anywhere with these folks. <laughs> um, so it'll be very interesting to see between the liberals, the NDP, and if the fucking Greens can even like stand up at the end of all of this. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day -day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction, and build hope. 
Nora, we duly note stuff that uh, that people might otherwise just never know about. What, what do you have to duly note today? Today, I want to duly note a decision that the federal government made uh, in the last couple of days that has gotten almost no attention. So, Jesse, tell me if you've heard about this. The federal government has made a change to NSERC and to CFI. That's the National Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada and the Canadian Foundation for Innovation. They fund scientific research in this country. And this past week, the federal government has instituted a new security intelligence risk assessment for all research funds that are doled out by NSERC and CFI. Now, these two agencies pay for uh, basic research in Canada. They pay for graduate students. CFI pays for uh, equipment and and laboratory modifications if you need to change your lab around or whatever. And the idea that the security establishment is now going to be part of deciding who gets research funding in this country, I think, is frankly – frightening. The way that this has been pitched to Canadians is, well, China is stealing our research secrets and therefore we need to survey Canadian researchers more. But it's an issue that has major implications on um, academic freedom. It has big implications on just our research program in general in this country and how we fund projects and how we fund collaborations, including international collaborations. And then, of course, it also has a huge impact on uh, Chinese researchers, whether or not they're international students or they're Chinese nationals doing research in Canada, or if they're just Chinese Canadians who are doing research on anything. Um, It's very broad and I wish that there was more outrage on this issue than the zero that I've seen. Well, I have to imagine that this has something to do with those two doctors in Winnipeg at the Level 4 Virus Lab. I guess I feel anxious and scared and uneasy more than outraged. Mm. But I, I will say duly noted. I have one. Okay. This is not something that escaped uh, people's attention. In fact... This trended in Canada with 1.4 million views. Um, It was a chart by an account called Tificient, which is a, as I understand it, they they basically do telecom data analysis. They don't have a lot of followers. Why did this go so viral in Canada? Because it is a chart of mobile data usage. And the chart was not meant to drag Canada. The chart was really like, hey, look, a gigabyte of mobile data has never been cheaper. Look at all these countries and how little they're paying for a gigabyte of data. And let's compare data usage, mobile data usage, against cost, right? And what they've shown is that most countries are all bundled up on one side of this graph. They're paying less for mobile data than ever before, and they're using a shit ton of it. And then way off in the far distance, way off, far away from all those other countries' little icons, at the most expensive And the lowest usage was Canada. What I want to duly note is not the fact of this because everybody knows that we are screwed on the daily. What I want to duly note is I don't want to hear you, Canadians, grouse about this because I've covered this stuff for five years. I've been through this before and you don't do shit. I won't play this game that we're all actually mad enough to change anything about the telecom grip on our federal government, which is now dictating everything about content policy and telecom policy. And we have a prime minister who ran on a platform of cutting our bills. They all fucking do. They don't do shit. And we're not going to do shit. And we're pathetic little weaklings. (laughs) You know, I was once at an event at Ryerson University honoring Ted Rogers uh, for I don't remember what. 
And in the middle of the event, someone's cell phone went off and the president at the time, Sheldon Lovey, stopped his speech and just off the cuff sent, oh, Ted's made another seven cents. And he got in a lot of trouble <laughs> for making fun of how much the Rogers family makes. And it was a very like exclusive event. So I was very happy to have been able to witness that uh, little uh, scuffle among the elites. This is theft. It's abhorrent. It's so typically Canadian. And I hate it just as much as you do. I'll duly note you're unduly... Fuck you. All right. So, Nora, I want to talk about something else that nobody wants to talk about or think about after a year and a half of the media, I think more or less really like trying to rise to the occasion and give people the information they needed. Everybody, every day, what's going on with this pandemic? What does it mean? What is the science today? What's the science? What's the next science? When's the vaccine coming? Like, let me learn about vaccines. And we, we kind of quickly established uh, the COVID news cycle, which became people's like doom scrolling habit. And we all, I don't want to be cynical about this. We, news audiences went way up during the pandemic, but I think that this was journalists for the most part, not cynically juicing that, but really trying to like people needed information and they needed to learn things. And we tried to help them. And you did this every day. Like it was just like a daily operation of a thousand different areas of concern. And one that was going neglected that you fulfilled a very crucial role looking at long-term care. But there were a lot of beats like that. Mm -hmm. And then there were beats of like getting the doctors on the air. Like suddenly these doctors were media personalities. Like we all know the territory that I'm describing very well. And it very quickly became what the media was comprised of. And now most of us are vaccinated and we're in this weird moment where I feel like the media doesn't know what to do, <laughs> right? Like, like, okay, we do like the traffic and we also are just creatures of habit that once we get into a rhythm. So like, you know, I'm hearing it goes up and then it goes down. Oh, Israel was looking good, but now the Delta. Ver so I, I heard like a scary story this morning, like, oh, actually Israel's fucked. I kind of am getting to this point where I'm like, I don't think herd immunity is going to happen. I think that COVID is going to be with us like forever. It's going to be like a booster shot. We don't have a news alert when there's a new booster shot. And maybe we're going to have to like wean ourselves off of the traffic mm. that we came to enjoy during the pandemic. And maybe what was once actually a useful service is now like we're actually fucking with people's well-being and like we need to fucking chill with, with, with the constant COVID coverage and the way that we're covering it. And I want to peg this to one thing I read in the star. Aaron Drafell spoke to me earlier, a health reporter for the Montreal Gazette about how too much can be destructive. And we got, we got too granular on AstraZeneca. Oh, it does this and the blood clots on one in a million, one in a hundred thousand. We basically put so much stink on this vaccine that people were afraid to get it. And now I read in the star that thousands of AstraZeneca doses have expired and been thrown out in Canada, which makes me just like violently angry. Like I went from pharmacy to clinic being turned away because I knew they were expiring. So I was like, I don't care. I'll lie to get this. And they <laughs> turned me away. But the media had something to do with that. What do you think? Like, what's your plan with the daily information, the journalism that you've been doing? Yeah. Uh, w w when do you stop? Yeah, I stop when the deaths stop in residential care. And we are getting really close to that. So I've been thinking about this a lot. And because I've been so immersed in that world online, I have for a long time been very concerned by the doom reporting that so many journalists and doctors, I mean, I don't want to say that they're doing reporting, but they've been contributing to it. In fact, you know, th there'd also often be times where I'd have, you know, private chats with other journalists saying, wait, like, does this feel like really 
really doomy or am I just like getting really cynical? It's like, no, no, no. People are being kind of over the top. But we always had to make sure people were just clinging to, as you say, to the press, to those daily reports to find out the next big thing. Um, And this has been very, very damaging. In fact, I'm writing a book about how (laughs) the pandemic was spun by media and politicians and looking at all of the different ways in which coverage was really torqued and unnecessarily and at the expense of doing things like you know, why wasn't there any national media organizations that would give us a a weekly snapshot of what the hotspots were? And not just that, but what the hotspots were and then what their cases were per capita. So you can actually compare and say, oh my God, the the outbreak in Northeastern Ontario is actually worse than almost all of the outbreaks that we've seen in Canada, including Peel, like which we've just heard a lot about. You know, so there was really no national coverage that gave that perspective. And in the same way, that would have also allowed people to see, oh, it's actually safer where I am. It's just been chasing that scariness that you talk about. And so, yeah, I don't know how the news agencies shift out of that. For me, uh, I've tried to highlight really good and positive news, like the medical advancements around mRNA vaccines, which I think are wonderful. And, you know, that there's really great stories coming out of people like lining up to get vaccinated and doing everything they can to try and, you know, make themselves safe. But there's a hangover here that is going to take a long time to go away. And I liken it a little bit to the American media coverage of Trump. And once Trump was out of the the mix, like then how did they pivot to Biden? You just can't do it in the same way. You could go the other way in the press as uh, Toronto Star's Martin Reg Cohn did uh, with a column. Uh, (laughs) Canada's vaccination rate is now world-class for all the doubting and doomsaying. Our progress has been nothing short of miraculous. That's a nice little (laughs) bit of nice news. They're also, you know, in, in the early campaign season for Trudeau. Um, what do you think of that hot take? It's That's a shit take. It was like, yes, uh, Jesus himself walked on water to give us these fucking vaccinations. That's what that means. Miraculous, right? That word actually means something. And in it, he also disparaged this idea that Canada is vaccine hoarding, which is objectively true. We are hoarding vaccines. This has been an issue for eight months now, nine months now. We're even trying to give away AstraZeneca doses that, you know, as you say, people like are not able to access. And so, you know, someone like Red Cohen, who's, I don't know, I mean, he's just so close to the liberals and and his stuff is just so predictable. That's the the other side that we also do not need. We don't need the rah-rah cheerleading, especially in the view of an election. We need to have really sober analyses about what Canada failed at. Because, I mean, talking about the good parts of it does what exactly? Like, I want to hear, like, what happened to the whole military establishment in this whole situation? We had military, military leaders that were supposed to coordinate it all. What did they actually do? And how much was this public health? And what is actually going on with healthcare workers that aren't getting vaccinated? What's driving that? Is there something that the majority of them are being driven by that we can actually have a conversation about? Or are we just going to say, no, no, it has to be mandatory. We need to make it illegal for them to not be vaccinated. If you're the kind of journalist or columnist that's boring and can't think outside of the box, the pandemic has been really difficult because you you then write the same story over and over and over again. And I th- I'm seeing that a little bit as now we're getting out of the difficult days of the pandemic in Canada, that you're going to see these really boring and obvious takes like, oh, actually, everything was great. We're the envy of the world. And it's like, that's not helpful either. We're giving away surplus that we paid for while we're throwing away surplus that we let spoil. This is no triumph. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the mood has changed. The vaccine is a miracle, 
we're all enjoying the relief of being vaccinated, not the relief of the wonderful management and leadership. I mean, Trudeau is just absent. But, and this goes back to that whole gold goldfish nation thing that I mentioned earlier, right? Like there's no interest in, in introspection. There's no interest in looking back and saying, OK, what, what actually did go wrong? What problems did we have within the Federation that we need to address? And this is why I wrote this book, because I knew that there would be a concerted effort to erase everything that we just went through. I was part of a report that came out at the end of June that estimated that Canada's actual COVID death rate could be double what has been officially announced. And it's been buried. Like, there's been no media coverage beyond the report. There's been no attempt to, like, look into the methodology, to question. Uh, I mean, in the rare cases that a public health official was questioned on this, uh, you know, uh, Bonnie Henry in British Columbia said that she'd take the report with a grain of salt. And we ask all these questions like, why is it this? Why is it this? Why is this? Why have all of these pieces of evidence showing that our death rate is actually far higher than has been officially counted? And Mm -hmm. there's no interest in like digging through that and and actually saying, oh, wow, maybe there is a problem with Canada's death reporting system. Maybe there is maybe the cremation data is telling us something interesting uh, about what has happened in this pandemic. But there's just this desire to just erase and erase and erase. And then we'll have the same debates and the same columnists will say the same thing over and over all as we march towards this um, this fall election. And it's really damaging because obviously there were a lot of issues that were laid bare during the pandemic and still are that we need to fix within society. But on a personal level, there's a lot of trauma because there's a lot of people that have lost a lot of people they loved from this pandemic. And a lot of those people did not need to die. And we have not ever reckoned with the fact that people died who didn't need to die. And I don't know what it's going to take to get journalists and politicians in their in different ways to actually contend and, and grapple with that fact. Well, I think you've laid out what COVID coverage might look like. It would be better than the kind of headlines that we're running from like Reuters with this misleading presentation of the World Health Organization mm. warning against mixing and matching COVID vaccines or just like meandering headlines about, you know, do we need a booster shot? And like, yeah. like we got to get out of the cycle. Your cycle is no more. It's still doom scrolly and negative and not anything that anybody wants to be reading over the summer <laughs> where I think people have deserved a little bit of, of, of a respite. But if, you know, if we're going to be publishing negative of depressing things. Let's at least have them be worthwhile. Yeah, right. Okay, that is Shortcuts for this week. Nora, thank you. You're welcome. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. You can email me. I'm at jesse at CanadaLand.com and I read everything that you send. Nora, where can people find you? You can find me uh, around. I mean, I'm at Twitter at no lore, N-O-L-O-R-E, or you can check out sandynora.com, um, the podcast, and I also read everything you send. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, if you want to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts and be a part of keeping this thing going, uh, support us. Hit the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.